Morning, everyone. I don't know if you're interested in your family tree, uh, your ancestry. Uh, I'm not really, but my brother is. <laughs> he seems to be obsessed by it. He's always trying to find out new scandals in the family and ringing me up and telling me about them. Um, if you're not interested in your family tree, you will be at some stage if you've got young children, because at some stage you'll have a school project where the teachers will ask you to uh, look at your family's history. I have a daughter who works in a church, and it's an old church, and uh, they've got a registry book that goes back for years, um, both in um, marriage and baptisms, and often the calls that she gets and the drop-ins she gets are about going to the registry or looking in the graveyard to find something about the family tree. She even had a knock on the door uh, a couple of years ago from one Kevin Rudd, who had a, a someone buried in the, uh, in the graveyard and uh, came in with a couple of very large men, gentlemen, and she showed him where to go. Uh, if you read the New Testament, you'll find that uh, the gospel writers, especially Matthew and Luke, are very interested in family trees. They're interested in the generations. And uh, they start off looking at uh, Abraham, at least Matthew does, and tracing Jesus' ancestry back to him. I guess Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience, wants his readers to know that Jesus comes from good stock, that he comes from, from the promise of Abraham through David to Jesus the Messiah himself. You'd expect this heritage to be a scandal-free zone, there may have been a few bad kings along the way, but at least they were Jewish or Israelite kings. Uh, but that's not entirely true. Because as you read Matthew's version of that genealogy, you'll find that there are four women that are mentioned in that family tree, only four. Two of them are engaged in sexual scandals, Bathsheba and Tamar. And the other two are the ones we're interested in this morning. The other two aren't even Jews. They come from outside of the Jewish faith. And what we're going to try to do is work out why they're there. Under what circumstances did they come to faith? Uh, and uh, were they the same or were they different? We want to ask these sorts of questions. Uh, what do their stories tell us about God? What do their stories tell us about uh, God's people? And what do these stories tell us about us at New Life today and what we need to do with those that uh, are perhaps different from us? Well, let's begin by looking at our first person, and her name we read before is Rahab. You don't get too many uh, daughters being called Rahab today, probably for good reason. Uh, let me give you the context of this. We're in the uh, time when the Israelites had left Egypt. They've wandered for 40 years through the desert. They've come to the borders of the Promised Land. It's around 1400 BC, and the Israelites are about to cross over, and Joshua decides to send out a reconnaissance party into the land to find out what's before them, especially the formidable city of Jericho. Uh, it's here, in fact, that we meet Rahab. She lives on the wall must have been a very, very thick wall. But she's a Canaanite, and we're told that she's a prostitute. And in some Bibles, you'll see the little letter A next to prostitute, and you go down the bottom and it says innkeeper. I guess that's a nice reading for those who don't want Jesus' heritage to be in any way um, caught up in a scandal. But 
later in the New Testament, uh, Rahab is called a harlot, so it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty obvious that she was a prostitute. Uh, she probably drummed up trade by leaning out the window of the wall as people came in and traders came in. She'd wave to them and, and call them up to her rooms. Now, the whole city knew of the miraculous work of God as the Israelites had been wandering for 40 years, coming up towards the, uh, the land of Canaan. Uh, they were relying on their gods initially uh, to, to ward off these invaders, and they thought that Jericho was impenetrable, that no one could get through. Uh, but not so Rahab, for when the two spies ask her uh, to be hidden, she makes a deal with them, as we read. The answer is obvious when we look at it closely. So let's have a look at Joshua chapter 2 and these verses. This is what Rahab says. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, that's all the Canaanites, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water, the Red Sea, for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Notice that last statement? It's a statement of faith, isn't it? It's like a creed. For the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and the earth below. In Hebrews 11, in that great hall of fame, Rahab is only one of two women who are mentioned. The other is Sarah, who I guess we'd expect being the wife of Abraham. This is what it says of Rahab. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. Rahab risked her life to protect the enemy spies because she realised they represented the God of Israel. She didn't just believe in the existence of a, a, a larger God. She believed in God. She put her faith, her saving faith, in the God of Israel. She wasn't an Israelite, but she epitomised what it means to live by faith and not by sight. She believed Israel's God would not only take care of her, but her whole family as well. So she invited mum and dad and aunts and uncles to come and stay with her. And we know what happened. The rest of the story, you probably remember from Sunday school days, or you've been taught before, the red cord hangs from the window. And uh, as the uh, Israelites come in, they leave Rahab and her family. Well, let's pick the story up in chapter 6 of Joshua and see the outcome. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They brought her out, her entire family, and they put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. 
Originally, she was outside the camp, but I guess as she looked more and more at the God of Israel, she moved into the camp and she took on the ways of the Israelites. She amended her ways, probably, and uh, she ended up marrying a very prominent Israelite whose name was Salmon, the son of Judah's tribal leader. And if you look back in Matthew's uh, account of the genealogy, you'll see that Salmon uh, and uh, Rahab have a child called Boaz, who'd marry Ruth. And from Ruth would come Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the ancestor of Jesus. Rahab didn't know at the time, but she experienced the messianic hope. She experienced the hope of a Messiah, and she was to be part of that. Someone from outside the Jewish nation was brought in and changed her life forever. She found deliverance physically and spiritually uh, through the mercy of God. And her story represents to us that uh, God always had a plan for non-Israelites to come into the fold. It was never plan B. It was there in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, it was going to unfold, as we'll see in the next few chapters. I mentioned before that uh, from uh, this uh, union of uh, Salmon and uh, Rahab, uh, we find that Boaz was born. And now Boaz comes into the story because he marries someone called Ruth. And let's look at her story. Uh, we're 400 years down the track. Uh, we're in the time of the judges. And the Israelites have entered the land and they're finding it pretty hard to, uh, to, to live in the land because there's lots of people that they have to sort of uh, redirect and, and move, move apart. And sometimes they're, they're moving them away and sometimes they're integrating with them and it's, it's a bit of a mess. And God raises different people at different times to look after them. But as they uh, went along, they encountered uh, the Malbites who were descendants of Lot. And the Moabites were idol worshippers. They worshipped the god Baal. And many of their women would entice the Israelite men to come over to this fertility cult and to worship their god. And we read that Ruth was a Moabitess. Well, what's her story? How does she come into the picture in the framework of those who are called by God to come to faith? Well, the story in a nutshell, at least the beginning of the story, goes like this. Uh, the story is about triumph over adversity and suffering. It's a story about uh, God, when you think his father's from you, is actually laying a foundation for good. And if you want to find out more, you'll have to read the book of Ruth. But that's the gist of it. It doesn't start off with Ruth. It starts off with her mother-in-law called Naomi. Uh, it begins with a famine in the land of Canaan, where Naomi is living. And she decides to move out with her husband to the area of Moab. And she takes her two sons with her. Uh, she believes that God's judgment is following her because her husband dies in the land of Moab. The sons marry two Moabite women and uh, they don't produce any children after 10 years and then both sons die. It's like the female version of um, uh, Job, isn't it? Everything that can go wrong seems to be going wrong for poor old Naomi. She feels she's being hit over the head with a sledgehammer. She hears that there's been food back in the promised land and she makes plans to return. Uh, but both daughter-in-laws want her to go with her, but she says, no, look, don't come back. There's no hope in this, this new land. Uh, there was always a promise 
in the land that uh, if there was someone who was a distant relation, uh, could marry uh, one of the girls. But in her despair, she can't even think that there's anyone available. And so in her bitterness and despair, she says, no, don't be involved. Don't come. Don't go with me. Uh, one of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, says, okay, I'll turn back. Uh, Naomi wants to go, but Ruth clings to her. Naomi painted the picture very black. Ruth took her by the hand and walked into the darkness with her. And these are her words as to why she did that. And they're wonderful words. She says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. When you think about these words, the more amazing they become. Her commitment to a mother-in-law is outstanding, isn't it? It's just amazing that she commits so much to her. It means going to an unknown land, to an unknown people, and never returning home. Sounds like Abraham. But the most amazing commitment of all is this. Your God will be my God. Naomi's experience of God was bitterness. But despite that, Ruth clings to her and says, your God will be my God. So Ruth and Naomi return to Jerusalem. And Naomi wants to be known not as Naomi, but Mara. And Mara means bitterness. She says, the Lord has brought me back empty. But Naomi, lift your eyes and see what God is about to do. Lift your eyes and you'll see the hand of God for good. For through a series of circumstances you can read about in the rest of the book of Ruth. Naomi marries Boaz and they have children. And of course, Boaz and Ruth become the grandfather and the grandparents of the greatest king of Israel. And, of course, Jesus, the King of Kings, can trace history back to King David. So there we are, outsiders, Rahab and Ruth, aliens to the covenant of grace, outside of Israel, yet drawn by God to it. Gentiles coming to know God was never a plan B. It was always in God's purposes to draw people in from outside of the Jewish religion. Uh, remember in Exodus and uh, chapter 19, which uh, Stuart talked about last week, it says this, uh, God describing the people, he says, look, the whole earth is mine, uh, but you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The Israelites were not just to keep it to themselves. They were to radiate the love of God and the character of God to those around them in the darkness. The nation was created to be inclusive rather than exclusive. It was never created to keep people out, but to draw people in. The sad part about Israel's history is they kept to the latter, mainly. They decided that they just wanted a little click for themselves rather than reaching out all the time. The prophets had to continually remind them to do that. Well, let's jump to the New Testament. A big jump. And let's get to the time of Jesus. When Jesus speaks to people, it's not just to the Jewish community, is it? When you look at uh, Jesus, 
reaching out to people. He reaches out to people of all sorts of different situations. A Samaritan woman at the well, a centurion, a Roman, uh, a faithful Canaanite woman whose, woman whose daughter is sick and uh, Jesus appraises her for her faith. Uh, lepers who are outside of the camp, outside of the community, are brought in by Jesus. Jesus speaks about him being the good shepherd and he says, look, I've got sheep from other folds that I want to bring in. The older brother in the story of the prodigal son represents Judaism and the older brother wanted to keep it for himself. But Jesus says, rejoice with the lost. Bring them in and rejoice. Truly knowing God was never to be an exclusive activity for one particular group. Pentecost, which we celebrate today, that decisive moment when the disciples spoke in other tongues to people who were there to celebrate the Passover and stayed on for Pentecost and heard the gospel in their own language and then moved out and took the gospel with them shows us that uh, the plan was always to radiate the message out to the Gentiles, even before Paul came on the scene. But what are the practicalities of doing that? What's it mean when you have one culture that starts to integrate with other cultures in the church? How does that work out? Well, I want to look at two New Testament examples just briefly to show how the early church uh, handled the situation and then just offer a few brief suggestions towards the end. We looked at Acts chapter 6 before. And uh, this is a story of um, a problem that was festering that wasn't allowed to fester because someone took decisive action. Let's just read it again. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Now, this is not just a language uh, clash. This is a cultural clash. The Hellenistic Jews had Greek culture behind them. The Aramaic Jews had Jewish culture behind them. And uh, it came to a fore in the distribution of food to the widows. Some were feeling that it wasn't fair that the uh, Jewish widows were getting more and the others were not getting an equal distribution. And so they had to deal with it before it festered. And they did just that, didn't they? The problem was a serious one. If left, it would have caused a major split in the church. I love what they did. So the 12, this is the, this is the apostles, uh, they gathered together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? But it's not when you look at it in context. Let's read on. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. They faced the situation immediately. They didn't let it fester. They didn't let it keep on going. Uh, there were no party backroom meetings behind closed doors with this. They did it openly and publicly. They thought through their priorities. They realised they were called to preach the gospel. This would sidetrack them. It was an important issue, but it needed to be dealt with not by them. Uh, their solution, choose seven people with wisdom and with the gift of service and make sure the widows are taken care of. It's interesting that the seven that they choose all have Greek names. Isn't that interesting? We, we wouldn't do that today. 
We'd slip in someone from the Aramaic party just to check up to make sure that everyone was being looked after. But they chose seven Hellenistic Jews to look after the problem. The result? Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and now a large number of priests are coming to the faith. Problem solved. You incorporate, you're inclusive. You don't exclude people from the Christian faith. Second scenario comes from Acts chapter 15 and it involves Peter and Paul. Uh, Paul has begun his first missionary journey and uh, many non-Jews are coming to faith but some Jewish Christians are getting a little bit upset because the non-Jews coming in aren't actually doing the sorts of things that Jews were doing. And so there are food laws involved and there is meat offered to idols and there's circumcision, all these sorts of things. And the Jewish Christians are saying, hey, look, it's great that you're Christians, but you need to do this, this and this now. And so Paul comes down to have it out with Peter and the Jewish church and they talk it through. Uh, You know the sort of thing, you know, you can come to my country, but you've got to obey my rules. You come to my church, this is the way we do things. Uh, Don't bring in your other ideas. We're we're quite happy doing the things we we do here. So they talk about it, and after some discussion, Peter stands up and says this. Again, let me read it to you. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. At the end of the speech, everyone's silent. No one says a word. Eventually, James, the brother of Jesus, church leader in Jerusalem, stands up and says this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It's a game changer. There are hiccups along the way, but fundamentally it's saying let's, from now on, make a policy of being inclusive in the way we act in church, never to be exclusive. And woe to those in our Christian community who claim to be an exclusive group. That's not the way. That's a misreading of the Bible if you think you can be an exclusive group and not allow others in. In practice, it means not just inviting people from our own culture to events that we have at church, but actually seeking out those from other cultures to invite to the events that we have. It means welcoming those from other cultures to our church and encouraging them to invite their friends, not with a thought, well, they actually might take over, but rather this is what we need to do. We need to bring the world to our church. It means being ready to adjust to change and to plan for change as we look at the demography of our area and we see what cultures are coming in. It means understanding a culture, (coughs) spending time researching and finding out different backgrounds that people come from, perhaps the sorts of things we do that might be offensive to some in different cultures. Uh, Perhaps in the first Friday feast, 
rather than just having our sausages and salad, we actually have a multicultural feast of some sort. Sorry to put that on those who cook the sausages, Adrian. Um, I don't know what you like with tandoori, but anyway. But, but doing something different. So we're actually inviting out those from other cultures to say, hey, this is, we'd love to, 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 to see what you do. Now, see, I think once, anyone who's been in a church for a while tends to think this is, this is our culture and anyone else who comes in is an outsider. But there are no outsiders in the Christian church, are there? There's only insiders. We need to welcome all. Israel's calling was to be a holy nation, an attractive alternative to uh, the nations around them. Both Rahab and Ruth saw the attraction and they placed their faith in the living God. Peter tells us in the New Testament that Christians are too a holy nation and a royal priesthood. The reason being to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. Are we doing that? The nations at our doorstep. We need to ask ourselves, are we up to that task? Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word this morning. Thank you that you show us that uh, we need to be to those who are inclusive and to reach out to everyone in our uh, community. We ask, Lord, that we might uh, do this in a way that is loving and caring and not insulting. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to plan for these strategies. In Jesus' name. Amen.